average is around um, producing around 800 ml of milk per day in those early stages. Ensuring that you're covering that energy cost ensures that you're able to get back to training faster, like your recovery is going to be better. There's a recovery nutrition aspect to this. And so it's not the time to have that messaging or that stress around weight. It's really the time to focus on, okay, what do I need to do here to recover? Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask, the sort of things that people are debating out on their training run or ride or talking about the coffee shop afterwards or jumping on Google to try and figure it out. So we'll take one of those topics, break it down, and invite a guest expert in our Part A episode and an athlete or coach in our Part B episode to add their perspective. So today it is episode 36A and our question is how do sports nutrition needs change when I'm pregnant or breastfeeding? And we're joined by Alicia Edge who's a sports dietitian up in Newcastle from Compete Nutrition and mother of three. So in this episode we'll discuss the nutrition requirements of pregnancy and breastfeeding and if these are either complementary or contradictory to our sports nutrition recommendations and advice. And also talk about the practical realities of training and eating during both pregnancy and breastfeeding, what this means for your sports nutrition practices, and some practical tips to help manage during what is often quite a challenging time of, of juggling so many things in your life. And we'll finally, we'll touch on some of Alicia's personal experiences with training and managing her nutrition during her three pregnancies and while breastfeeding her kids as well. So, Steph, how are you going this week? I'm going good, yeah. I'm going good. Um, what's happening? Going to Perth um, this week, ready mm. for Pascal's um, Ultra this coming weekend. So um, Ricardo's already started the long drive, covering about 10 hours each day. So um, we're getting hourly sort of updates on, you know, his whereabouts and how that's all going. Um, so I think he's halfway um, there now, which is good. Uh, and yeah, just, uh, getting, ticking the running off now. I'm getting, getting to the stage now where I can almost start fueling myself because it's actually worthwhile, whereas it hasn't been at that stage for, for a long time. And I'm, I'm actually, um, fingers crossed touch wood starting to feel fitter. So, um, just make sure the injuries stay at bay and, um, and I'll be excited when I come back for Perth to, to, um, run five hours mm, so you've gone over to help work at the margaret river ultra and then you're coming back for the monash base nutrition ultra exactly and then i have dobbed myself in thereafter because i figured well i've got myself then fit enough to do your five hour ones so then i'll just go down the chain and then i'll do pascal's three hours and then i'll do chris analysis two hour ones um and then i'll probably be kaput Fair enough. That's that's enough for a while. That's oh, I'm but glad you're if... doing mine first, though. <laughs> yes, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to do any other before that. Yeah. Um, and what about you? Um, I know you mentioned you you just got to go out on the bike recently and test out some some fuel. 
Yeah, yeah, got out on the bike today actually um, and had a bit of a, a play around. I was speaking to a client who's doing a 200-mile ultramarathon later in the year and we were talking about just different options in terms of race foods and fluids and things for him and um, and it just occurred to me, you know, in a lot of ultras, obviously you know, nausea can be an issue for people and it had been for him in the past and, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked a little bit about um, sort of using ginger for nausea I think we discussed that previously on the podcast in, in an episode. I know we certainly talked about it a lot offline as well. Mm. Um, and actually using like um, ginger beer cordial. So Bickford's ginger beer cordial is the one I got, but there's other brands as well, depending on where you live. Um, and then just making up a weak version of that. You don't want it too strong that it has that really sort of harsh gingery aftertaste while you're running, not so nice, or riding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then adding maltodextrin to that as a carbohydrate source, which doesn't alter the flavour, doesn't make it any sweeter than it already is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I gave that a go today for the first time, and it went down really well, actually. Um, I was pleasantly surprised. So mm-hmm. um, that's something I can go back, and he's, he's ultras not until early next year, um, but yeah. we're already starting to plan. So I'll say, yeah, that's, that's something we can have a look mm-hmm. at using, Tick. which would be good. Yeah, yeah, mm. so good. All right, let's jump into social media shout-outs and questions, Steph. Uh, who have we been speaking to or who's been corresponding with us this week on Instagram? Mm, yeah, so we had um, uh, Cyrus Monk. Hopefully I've said pronounced that correctly. Um, so he's a cyclist uh, riding with the Myo CCN Pro Cycling team. Yep, it's and- a team from Taiwan actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. And a coach with HP Tech. So that's the coaching business founded by our previous guest who we had on, um, Dr. Stephen Lane. Um, and so, yeah, he mentioned, hi, guys, big fan of the podcast with now an endless stream of nutrition information available to aspiring athletes from various questionable sources. It's great to have this resource from two such well-researched dietitians available for free to the public. I regularly recommend the podcast to athletes I'm coaching as a great starting point for practical nutrition advice. Uh, Also really love the format, allowing listeners to hear from both um, dietitians or practitioners um, and athletes. So, um, yeah, thank you very much, Cyrus. We're we're glad that it is um, useful um, and appreciate that feedback. Um, and, And then we... Al didn't have much going on Twitter or Facebook. No, no. But as, as always, Steph, you've been busy and uh, people have been corresponding with you uh, <laughs> off social media. We'll say social without the media. Yes. What's, what's been happening? <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we got one from um, Meg um, who's been um, participating in some of our research. And uh, anyway, she um, just sent me an email the other day saying um have you seen the Kit Kat Chunky with Biscoff um and that she immediately um thought of me when she saw that because of the episode out that we'd done with Emma Jeffcoat so yep. we haven't seen that but um when we do see it it won't be in the shops for long it will it will be in our bellies I was going to um, say I've got to go to the yeah. shops after literally after this to oh, get dude. some groceries so oh, no I might way. have to try one on the way oh. back um, and I'm actually it. catching up with Emma tomorrow morning, actually, oh. before they head off to, to Europe for a while. So, yeah, so, I'll have to uh, maybe give her yep. a farewell gift. Yeah, I was going to say that. Get get her one. 
um, and they won't just be seeing then crumpets in her pack when she leaves. It'll be a Biscoff Kit Kat as well. Mm. <laughs> um, we also had the lovely um, Alice McNamara um, who mentions that she, yeah, she said um, continued well done on, on the podcast um, and it's a resource that she uh, shares a lot. So thank you very much, um, Alice, um, for that. Awesome. All right, and just a reminder that if you have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, whether it's a question that you'd like answered or whether it's just other feedback, um, good, bad, or otherwise. We're always happy to hear from you and uh, happy to see uh, if there's any suggestions for, for things that we can do to improve the podcast. Today's episode, Al, what are we up to? Yeah, it's episode 36A today. How do sports nutrition needs change when I'm pregnant or breastfeeding? And we are joined by sports dietitian Alicia Edge. We are. Um, So Alicia um, Edge is... um, did her fellowship, I believe, Al, at the Australian Institute uh, of Sport mm-hmm. um, and also sounded like when we chatted to her, competed at a reasonably high level um, in terms of, of hockey and turns out to be um, a naturally, you know, pretty decent runner as well. Um, but then, um, you know, she's um, started to to um, begin a family and found um, living in Canberra wasn't so um, logistically um, appropriate, I guess, because family were um, more so in rural Melbourne. So anyway, they I think that's where they were. Um, no, not in Melbourne. Where were no, they? Um, near, near Newcastle. Newcastle, Melbourne, Newcastle. Yeah, similar. 1,500 Ks difference. <laughs> we'll, we'll overlook that. <laughs> anyway, so she um, she went there and, um, you know, was was trying to think of um, how she would get back into um, her career of sports dietetics and uh, ended up uh, starting up a, a tech um, tech startup company. Um, so basically um, like a sports nutrition consulting company um, in an online presence um, and um, developed that with a husband and it, it seems to be doing really well. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we wanted to get her on for this particular um, question because she's actually got three kids um, and um, she she works with a lot of athletes that ha- – have gone through, um, yeah, pregnancies, motherhood, and also she's done it herself. So she's not only giving out the advice, she's actually experienced herself, you know, suffered from morning sickness and nausea um, and has got some really good practical advice. So Mm. that is who we have on today. Mm. And she's also the dietitian for the Matildas, the Australian women's soccer team. Thank you. Yes. Yep. Yep, she is. Um, and also, I should say, they do have a team of dietitians who um, also then work with um, a range of endurance athletes, so yep. um, working with ultra-endurance athletes. So, um, yeah. Yep. yep, exactly right. All right, looking forward to this one, Steph. Let's get into our interview with Alicia. Let's do it. Alicia Edge, welcome to The Long Munch. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Alan. 
just to start off to tell us a bit more about about yourself um so you and your husband dan founded your business which is called compete nutrition um and that's um yeah based down in in newcastle can you tell us a bit about compete nutrition and and how it all began yeah it was very accidental (laughs) It took us a long time to work out that we were a tech startup, embarrassingly long time. Whenever I'm talking to anyone in tech, they're like, how did you not know? But it was accidental in the way that I was at the AIS for a few years and we decided to leave the AIS in Canberra as a family when our first child was due. Um, just it didn't suit us. We were seven hours away from my parents for support and it was fast becoming that sport wasn't necessarily the most child-friendly environment. The days of work each week changed all the time. The hours of work were very variable. I just couldn't see how daycare would fit in and then without family support as well, it just wasn't going to be a thing. So we moved to a small country town called Foster uh, for Dan's new work and once I was ready to re-enter the workforce, I think I kind of scared him but also he realized very quickly how broken our return to work system was for females re-entering a health workforce um I just spent a few years at the AIS as I said so he was just like is this your option like is this what's what career is for you even though you've just spent three years you know putting yourself forward in the fellowship, but also then working your way up. And I was like, yeah, I, like I could work at, in aged care. I was in this small country coastal town. I could hire out a room or, you know, these are the options. And he's like doing the maths, just going, I can't understand how this is the option. Like, and I won't allow it. And it, in a really, you know, a feministic way of like, no, I, I can't allow you to do that. And so we made a really hard decision. It was one of the most uncomfortable decisions I've definitely ever made. And I still remember it very vividly. It's like, you won't earn money for at least two years if we do this. And I was like, oh, geez, that sounds a bit exaggerated. Sure. Okay. Like, we can give it a go. But it was spot on. We didn't pay ourselves for a really long time, more than two years. Um, and we were really fortunate that we could just go off one salary. Um, but everything we owned went into compete at that point. Uh, and we started playing around with technology to see how nutrition could be provided in a technological solution rather than it being relied upon in a face-to-face setting. Uh, And this was before COVID and all the online stuff. So it was very innovative at the time. And we had a lot of doubters and we had a lot of people resisting saying that's not possible. You've got to be right in front of that athlete. Um, But we gave it a red hot go. And it's kind of been from there, we got picked up by a tech accelerator um, who invested in us. And then we learnt the word tech startup. <laughs> and that was in 2017, end of 2017. And then so the last four, four and a half years has been um, really intense and really uncomfortable and very scary and high risk. <laughs> but it has also been really fun. Awesome. Wow. Um, bit of a, a roller coaster ride, it sounds like. Oh, every day. Like it depends on the day, it depends on the week, but you never like allowed to stay high for long like you always get a dip (laughs) it's um yeah it's really tough and for me who was a real safety sand personality I think I still am very risk averse uh it there's been a lot of tears and there's been a lot of wanting to back out and reverse and please stop and Dan's like well you're kind of too far now like (laughs) you're either doing this or you're not but there's people involved and you've kind of just got to keep going so yeah I haven't actually been allowed to quit even when I've wanted to to be honest When you, when you first started, Alicia, obviously yeah. doing things online, um, mm. as you said, I mean, a lot of doubters, um, did you find that was about the technology side of things or even just being able to 
talk to clients online. Mm. Yeah, the doubt has definitely arisen from you won't be able to change people's behaviours if you aren't with them. You won't be able to build rapport or connection without being there with them. Um, and I believed them for a fair while. I was like, yeah, you're right. And I, and I still don't believe that we'll ever replace that face-to-face. I think mm. there's just such a value in face-to-face and that's never been our goal. Our goal's never been to set out and say, yeah, let's get rid of face-to-face. I adore it and I hope it never changes. But we also have such a beautiful, um, uh, I guess, gift as health professionals to change behaviour. And nutrition is one of those really weird, wacky ones where most of the challenges, most of the difficulties actually don't happen when we're with someone in a room. They're happening in the Mm. home, in the shopping, in the training environment um, where they might have binge sessions or they might have trouble choosing which pesto or they might have all the way through to, you know, this happened or I forgot to shop or I'm unsure what to do here. And so we've got that unlimited access for that very reason where we don't expect our dietitians to respond straight away. Our dietitians still have lives. But we do adore that our clients can um, dump their little questions or their challenges or their reflections whenever they need so that we can be there where they need it and when they need it rather than having to wait, okay, I need to remember to ask these questions in two weeks when I've got my appointment. So it's definitely changed into more of a subscription membership option to allow our dietitians to be there for that behaviour change coaching more so than a prescription service. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I obviously started an online practice hmm. 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, I, think, I remember like chatting to you about it, Alan. <laughs> yeah, well, that was at a workshop that Steph and I ran. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, hmm. yeah, same same kind of thing. I mean, obviously I didn't go hmm. down the sort of the, the platform and the, um, that side of things in, in the way that hmm. you have because I had too many other things on the go. But yeah, um, no, just, yeah. but just <laughs> – but just doing, you know, consults online and people at the start, mm. oh, you can't do that and mm. what will happen? I remember presenting at a conference, like a dietitian's conference, and have these yeah. people go, oh, that's not going to work outside of sports nutrition. You can't do that. And 10 years later, everyone's doing it. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like, well, how are you managing the transition? I'm like, um, well, I did that 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm so grateful because it's brought Medicare up so quickly where mm. I don't think any of that would have been um, anywhere near it is now because it needed that push, whereas I think so much resistance would have happened otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I'm really grateful almost for that change, but also the acceptance that it's brought in the population and also in the dietetic community as well. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Um, and so you work with a, a range of athletes all the way through from recreational to elite Olympic level and, and professional sporting teams like the Combank Matildas. Um, do you have any particular highlights for you in your sports dietetic career working across this range of, of athletes? Yeah, I, it's definitely not the easiest career. I know all the people listening are active individuals like, what? <laughs> I am easy. But I think in elite sport, it gets really tricky in terms of that balance, but also the politics and the um, environments and the cultures are all very different between teams and codes and um, expectations. And my values are very set um, in terms of a person first approach and very set in terms of behavior change centric and allowing that really positive relationship with food and body to then allow for that really fun in performance nutrition. 
And so um, it can be resistant to change in different cultures and environments, depending on what the coach's um, perceptions are, but also um, what the um, values are around weight and things. So um, the biggest highlights for me are actually the really small wins when I see culture change and I perceive um, that real sense of um, progression in how our coaches or our sports science team are talking to our athletes around performance and person-centered language rather than it being weight or measure centric. So I adore working with the athletes and seeing their wins all the time, but I feel like the further I go down my career, the bigger wins for me and the most memorable ones are the ones where I see a really clear um, improvement in that longer term perception of that athlete and I know that the player or the athlete is going to have such a longer lasting career but also a really positive one in terms of that change so yeah my most memorable moments are actually um, a little bit different now than I think they used to be. Yep Um, and do you have a particular sporting background yourself Um, and and what do you kind of yeah, I guess as a as a kid, what what was your main sort of sport, and what are you getting up to now? Hmm. Uh, I originally, as a kid, would just get into anything that was going that I could possibly be okay at, and so distance running was a real love of mine, um, alongside hockey. Um, probably the two main sports that I kind of delved into I was one of four kids so I was kind of just I, I did indoor cricket at one stage I did like I just kind of floated around either with my brothers or wherever I was, my parents were carpooling and I remember so vividly the moment that I fell in love with distance running because I hadn't been training for cross country and I, I was just a natural runner and I remember my older brother going you're not going to do well you have not trained at all and I was like okay I see that and I am going to win this race and I so made red rag to a ball. <laughs> brought my trophy home <laughs> and I was like right I'm now a distance runner and it was just that identity thing but um we then uh, went fell into triathlon a little bit alongside that running I think it's just a natural progression where you just try and do a little bit of different stuff um and we managed to get a contract for a year overseas in Netherlands playing hockey um, so Dan and I lived in Netherlands in 2010, 2011, playing and coaching hockey. I put my career completely on pause at that point and it was really scary to do so. I thought it was a really silly decision not to work at all for a year, but it was actually one of the best decisions of my life in terms of where it then took me career-wise but also as a person. Um, and, yeah, so from there we went straight into triathlon. We had enough of hockey after living it for a year and we went to distance triathlon where I did my first Ironman and only Ironman. (laughs) And uh, I realised that I wasn't my best self doing Ironman. So most of my distances for triathlon were half Ironman. And that's where my um, sport took a bit of a turn. I had um, birth injury after my first child and so I wasn't able to run anymore. Uh, and that took me years to get over in terms of losing that part of me and my mm. identity and who I thought I was in terms of triathlon and running. Mm. Um, so yeah. I started lifting weights and explored that and it was like so foreign to me but it's just been so nice to get back into movement even though it was different. I needed something else to identify as and own as, you know, a, a something that I did out away from family because I'm mm. a mum of three young kids and so you don't get much time to yourself. So um, that's been where I, what I do now, but it's very low key and very casual. And it's really based around me being my best self at home rather than it being performance focused. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Um, 
Uh, and so I guess uh, our topic today is how does my training nutrition needs mm. change um, whilst pregnant and still training? Um, and so, yes, you are a mum. Look at transition, of, wasn't it? That worked out. <laughs> <laughs> You're a mum of three kids um, and um, obviously enjoy being active. So um, going more into the nutrition during pregnancy, what's the actual extra energy requirement when pregnant um, and does this vary much depending on the um, trimester that you're in? Yeah, so when we're looking at um, eating for pregnancy, I think the first thing I need to put here is to let go of all expectation upon yourself um, to do what might be best in terms of health or for the baby because every pregnancy is so, so different. <clears throat> and I think the really hard thing is is that uh, I know before I was pregnant with my first bub, you knew all the nutrients that were important and all the foods that were healthful and things to have more of. But then pregnancy has another idea for many of us and being able to actually eat all those foods that you're told are really important for your health or for the baby's development is really tough. Um, and so depending on your levels of nausea, vomiting, um, fatigue, it, it's really hard to stick to these. So as I say um, numbers of energy or nutrients and stuff, please make, like, please know I'm saying this uh, for you as a person who might be about to go on this journey or has been in this journey and might have another bub. Um, it, it's not perfect and it doesn't look perfect and there's nothing glamorous about pregnancy for some of us. And then others seem to just float through really nicely. And I was one of those people who had a beautiful first pregnancy. My first pregnancy, I was really that annoying one that could exercise through, enjoyed it, got a bit of nausea, but, you know, ate pretty normally. My second and third told me <laughs> exactly how good I had at that first pregnancy and I gained a lot of empathy <laughs> uh, for others that would, were going through, you know, a similar thing but also worse than what I had it as well. So in that first trimester, you will be adding a little bit of weight. You'll be growing the placenta mainly. You'll have um, different tissue. You'll have a little bit of breathlessness. So everything's working a little bit harder. So your energy needs just as a result of those few things actually increases not to a big extent, you know, an extra 100, 150 calories per day is how it roughly averages out. Um, and then by the second trimester, you've put on a bit more weight. And over the full pregnancy, the average we're aiming for is anything from like 12 to 13 kilos on average. But that could be a little bit less, particularly if you're an active individual. We tend to find that it might look more like that 10 to 11 kilos. But honestly, there's no right or wrong. It's very flexible in terms of that median ground. Um, but as your weight increases and you start to grow your baby alongside, you know, developing that placenta and all those things that go along with it, your energy needs do increase. And so the second trimester, you're looking at, you know, anything around that 300 calories extra per day on average, it doesn't always end up perfect. And then by the third trimester, it can be actually as much as like that 400 to 500 calories extra per day. So it's quite significant and it's quite a lot, particularly if you're someone who monitors closely what they're eating or tracks or is very conscious of their energy intake. Uh, it's a really important thing to be aware of. Um, for those that are active, the biggest thing we want to consider here is not necessarily making sure we're eating enough, like in terms of just adding a little bit, we actually want to ensure energy availability. So making sure that we're counting, okay, well, 
if I'm exercising this much per day, I need this much left over for my normal bodily processes, let alone then adding to that the um, body process that you need for pregnancy as well. So mm. I, um, that's really the key there is making sure we're eating enough to cope with not only the pregnancy and the body process, but also the exercise as well, because that's um, the biggest thing we'll look at is um, ensuring that there's a surplus there. Yeah. yeah. And so um, as you mentioned, you, you know, you're obviously gaining weight. Um, mm. So then when you're training, um, let's say you're running, um, you do you need then more energy then because you're carrying the extra weight around with you? So mm. it's even more energy needed during training compared to when you're not pregnant? Yeah, spot on. So you're less energy efficient. <laughs> so mm. there's all these things going on um, that can be really um, uncomfortable in terms of, not uncomfortable, well, obviously there's a discomfort in pregnancy as you get bigger, but uncomfortable in terms of mind and relationship with body uh, and what your perception is around weight um, or how sensitive you are. Um, I've worked with athletes going through pregnancy and birth that actually let go of all their um, body image, you know, um, like preconceptions or concerns and they found it was one of the best times in their lives for body image but I've also worked with athletes on the other side of that as well who found it very hard to notice and see changes in their body or lose that identity of who they were attached to in terms of body fat percentage or weight or you know tone and definition and those types of things so um, there's no right or wrong there it's actually can be you know empowering for some but really um, difficult for others. And so being aware of that and noticing that and just not judging yourself for those um, thoughts is a really important step there to allow yourself to then have permission to eat enough. Mm, yep, yep. And um, how good is appetite in terms of, you know, telling you that you need extra energy? Can, can we rely on, you know, when I'm pregnant, can I rely on that? To, to tell me how much I need? It's it's so hard. Some, I would say absolutely. And they have such an innate ability to trust um, their appetite and they have no nausea and, you know, the lethargy is gone and all those things. But for the majority, particularly in that first and second trimester when nausea can still carry on well into 20 weeks plus, uh, it's very difficult to get enough energy in. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I had days in my first trimester where I struggled to get 100 to 200 calories in total and it was disgusting. It was the most horrific time of my life. I was still parenting two kids at that point and uh, I was just a shell. There were, I couldn't even walk upstairs, let alone even consider exercise. It was just the met metabolic adaptation was real <laughs> in terms of just me conserving energy to my very closest extent just to ensure that I was able to survive but also grow a baby so that nausea and vomiting can be really intense and so trusting that or even allowing yourself to do that is really um, impossible for some whereas um, it can definitely be possible and I've seen it for many where they're able to um compete through that first and second trimester at the professional level and I've worked with them and I've seen them and I'm amazed. Um, so that's when we need to ensure that um, if we aren't able to trust that appetite for most of them, we're using fluids that are uh, energy containing to make that a little bit easier. Um, we're eating more frequently because also what happens as that baby gets bigger, your ability to 
cope with large meals as less as well. And so sometimes we need to change how you're eating, whether it's um, choosing more liquids that have energy in them or whether it's um, eating more frequently or eating more energy dense foods. There's little things that we do work with um, as a dietitian with pregnant athletes for that very reason to make it possible. But yeah, sometimes we do need to adapt. Mm. Yep. Yep. And um, are there particular nutrients that are kind of needed in higher amounts compared to, you know, when we're not pregnant and, um, and then do these change um, when we're adding in the training and the racing compared to the general recommendations for, for people that are pregnant? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to focus on first and foremost is energy availability. Like before you rule that off or concern yourself with too many nutrient stuff, like ensure you're getting enough energy in um, to cope with your training and what your body needs. And then we can kind of level up with those next things to cross off. Um Actually, I would be remiss. I will answer your question, Steph, but I need to make sure that people who might be a little bit carb phobic aren't totally freaked out by the fact that their tolerance of protein is extremely low. And maybe their tolerance of fruits and veggies can be very low as well, particularly in those first and second trimesters. So you may actually be eating very differently to how you perceive as your normal or the healthiest option and be very, you know, carb centric, um, very processed food heavy. Um, and that's okay. There is full permission to lean into that and not feel guilty or shame that your food, I, I remember like, um, going into a hot chip shop at one stage and just go, oh, my God, I hope no one sees me. Like, this is so ridiculous. I haven't eaten anything. I'm just going in here and just getting hot chips at, like, 11 a.m. or something just so I can have something to eat. And um, that would just be a behaviour I'd never do, but I I do love hot chips. But at that moment, that was actually just all I could stomach. And Mm. there was another time that I, like, just cried into this piece of toast. (laughs) It was just toast with, like, I don't know, it was literally Vegemite toast. And Dan comes in, he's like, are you okay? I was like, I don't. I know I need to eat this. I just can't physically eat this piece of toast. And he's like, can I have it? And I was like, I just bawled. I was like, oh, God, <laughs> yes, you have it. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it just can be so hard um, and just to let go of that. Now, in terms of nutrients that are important, um, most should be supplementing, hopefully before conception if possible, Uh, In terms of some of those nutrients, having um, the um, supplements that are specially made and, you know, the folate and everything coming in. And then once you are pregnant, you do have high iron needs. And iron needs in an athlete, particularly one, say, of an endurance athlete or a runner, are already high. So it can be very difficult to get those levels. And uh, ensuring you've got a support team around you that um, advocates for blood tests and screening and ensures you've got adequate iron levels is really important and advocating for yourself. Um, If you are supplementing with iron and it still is depleting quite rapidly uh, and you're unable to get those iron levels up, ensuring that you've got a team that advocates for you in terms of other options and things because, Mm. yeah, it can make such a difference in terms of how you feel but also how you cope through birth and also those early weeks in breastfeeding to ensure that you do have good levels of iron in particular. Um, Other things you want to think about, uh, definitely things like your calcium, your vitamin D. Um, So ensuring that you're getting plenty of those um, is ideal. But um, yeah, as I said, it can be a struggle. So supplement if needed, 
but also I've met people who can't keep supplements down. So mm. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Yeah. And it's so weird. It's not a nice time sometimes. Alicia, have you had uh, experiences with athletes where they've actually gone to the extent of sort of deliberately sort of testing for iron preconception as part of that whole sort of process and then potentially even getting an iron infusion because they know they're low and they're anticipating that it's going to drop even further during pregnancy? Mm. I've um, not athletes, not professional athletes, but I have worked with individuals with iron or susceptible to low iron that has been checked. And then we um, do the infusion in preparation, similar to what you would do um, if you know you're going to a high stress environment like altitude. So Mm. um, it's such an important part. I myself had an infusion in my third pregnancy. Um, We just could not get iron levels up to a point where I felt comfortable in terms of how I was functioning as a human. I was very symptomatic for iron deficiency, Um, but then also how I would even cope with birth in those early weeks um, at the point I was in. So um, I had to advocate quite hard and so I'm very aware of my privilege in that position where I was able to because I knew what those levels meant I knew that I was already supplementing and doing my best with my food but I also say that advocating is very difficult because I knew what I was doing and I knew what I was talking about but for most listening that's a really hard point where you do put your trust in like oh they they'll tell me if I need something but if you feel like you've done everything you can and you're still not seeing levels where you're feeling comfortable or you're really symptomatic um, it, it's also really important to note you're working with midwives a lot of the time and they're not really aware of the needs of a professional athlete or an athlete that's, you know, even if you're an everyday active individual, that's probably not someone they work with often. So having a team that's diverse and able to have that conversation together is a really big asset if you can have that. And then it sounds like also monitoring that iron throughout pregnancy. And as you said, it's also having that in mind, then heading into breastfeeding and the months Mm -hmm. postpartum as well, um, and ensuring iron is adequate there. Yeah, spot on. And yeah, it it definitely changed everything. Like in terms of the timing of that infusion, I would not take it back. I was so nervous. I was really scared about it. Like you don't want, it's not something you want in terms of like any kind of, um, thing like if you can avoid it then that's absolutely the goal but it's there for a reason uh and it definitely changed things for me yeah yeah the other thing i was just going to check with you you mentioned before um sort of people struggling to tolerate protein Mm. or fruit and veggies by tolerance you meant sort of gut tolerance like it made Mm. the nausea worse or more likely to vomit as opposed to like food allergy tolerance yeah yeah sorry not food allergy it was tolerance in terms of like i would vomit Mm. even just cutting up broccoli for my kids for dinner yeah so bizarre so mm. weird it, um i remember one day i was trying to cut up watermelon and i was vomiting in the seat going this is disgusting i can't believe i'm going to touch this yeah <laughs> so foreign it's very weird but anyway uh yep. you might just live off carbs for a little bit but i also as i said every um pregnancy is very different so i've worked with athletes who are able to eat very normally maybe a little bit different but um very normal in terms of their usual um, foods and then we've had to adapt a lot in other athletes. I feel very fortunate to now be um, able to work in a time where we do have professional athletes having babies and still performing and going back and um, only recently we had one of the Matildas return for their very first camp with Bub in tow and it was just such a proud moment to like go yeah we've reached this point only the start we've still got a lot of work to do but um, yeah to see these athletes returning is super fun. Mm. And for, um, I guess, you know, 
whether it's morning sickness, whether it's other mm. things going on in their lives. Have you had examples of where pregnant women have sort of had to adjust maybe to some degree probably their training schedule in terms of the mm. types of sessions, but mm. also like when in the day they train because it makes it easier to manage things? Yeah, that's that's spot on. Like sometimes you don't have control, like in terms of um, my recent example in team sport. <laughs> the training is when it is and the games are when they are and um that was really challenging we had to um you know there's things that you need to do and adjust and ensure that they're feeling their best but also at that point in time sometimes you don't even know the athlete is pregnant yet so mm-hmm. um they're often doing it in the dark so if you are one of those people who is just you know going through that first trimester now or planning to get pregnant soon it, it can be really tough to even have the confidence to talk up and speak up to your coach or um, those who you train with to adjust those times. But it can make a really big difference to ensuring that you're um, feeling filled going into those sessions. So um, the mornings can be more tricky for some. And then I've had others where the afternoons are harder because of the really high fatigue as well. So um, finding a time that works can be really hard, especially if you've already had um, a bub or two or you're working full time (laughs) alongside your training. Um, But if you have the ability, uh, it can make a really big difference to adjust, but also to allow for um, enough nutrition and also for weather as well. So, you know, you're wanting to avoid the heat, you're wanting to minimise risk, um, you're wanting to ensure that you can keep that core temperature you know, down. So it's, um, yeah, those types of things are things to think about as well. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's obviously it's going to be very individual um, depending mm-hmm. on sort of, you know, what yeah. sort of symptoms you experience and so forth. But I guess mm-hmm. thinking about gut tolerance and whether you can fuel adequately for training will be one consideration. Mm-hmm. One will be around just the general fatigue um, or aches and pains and that kind of thing. Um, and then the other one, as you said, will be around the weather and temperature. So probably those three factors. Yeah, spot on. And and I think showing yourself so much self-forgiveness if you can't manage training or you do have to choose bed or choose the couch instead or um, you don't have the the same pregnancy as someone you're comparing yourself to in terms of who you're following on social media. I found that so challenging. And I think it's one of the hardest parts is you see, you know, other pregnant women doing it or um, you see them holding their fitness or their ability to train and you're, you know, in the toilet just going I don't even know how they're gonna I don't know how I'm gonna move today let alone seeing them glow and get through their training sessions and if you're a competitive athlete that feeling of FOMO or going behind or you know having an experience that isn't necessarily fair or kind uh, can be really hard so yeah getting people on your side to support you through that and you know make you feel like you're um, going to be okay is yeah it's worth a lot yep Okay, sounds great. All right, well, let's move on to um, the second part of the episode, which is more around training and nutrition needs while breastfeeding and training. And I know there's quite a few women who return to sport uh, at various levels um, and volumes of training, I suppose, uh, that will be breastfeeding and, and, you know, some concerns around that and how to manage it all. So I guess if we start out similar to like we did with pregnancy for general nutrition recommendations for mm. breastfeeding, what are the... the you know, if we, if we just take out the training for a second, what are the general nutrition recommendations for breastfeeding that might be different to at any other time of your life? Yeah, probably the biggest one is that you might need a second breakfast. Mm. <laughs> Those are Ironman athletes listening, though. They'll know what I'm talking about. But the breastfeeding hunger, oh, my goodness, it's real and it's big and I would honestly compare it to, like, because I did Ironman and then I fell pregnant 
like only a couple of years later, I was like, this is the same as training for Ironman. <laughs> like I mm. am like this hungry um, <clears throat> and it's real. And I think the really tricky piece, and I feel very fortunate that I never felt any pressure to um, lose weight, but I've worked with many that feel pressure to bounce back, to lose weight, to return to their racing weight quickly. Um, and so there's a fear around that hunger. It can be really um, uncomfortable in terms of just going, no, I need to resist that or I need to ensure that I'm back to racing weight by then or, um, well, if I don't eat as much now, I'll, you know, I'll be back um, training or racing sooner. It is absolutely possible to lose weight while still trusting that appetite and that appetite is real. Your needs, if you're um, averaging, the average is around um, producing around 800 mil of milk per day in those early stages, you're needing around 500 calories extra per day. So it's very similar to end of um, third trimester kind of um, amount of energy needed. But the beauty is you actually have space and you can actually enjoy your meals a little bit more without reflux. So that's a nice thing. Um, <laughs> but finding time is tricky. So that extra 500 calories can be tricky in the way that you've got only got one hand a lot of the time or you're parked on a couch breastfeeding a lot of the time as well. So reaching for and accessing food is a little bit tough. Um, so that's when a little bit of planning goes a really long way. And I'm not talking planning as in prepping and using all those hours to stress over food, but embracing one-handed meals is real and necessary and also snacks. So there's different ways that you might find works for you in terms of getting that extra energy in. Um, it could be increasing the size of your meals. Uh, it could be adding extra snacks in over the day. Uh, it could be um, choosing more energy dense options. So, you know, more um, like a bit less veggies and salad and more energy um, intake through your um, proteins, all the fats and carbs and things like that. So ensuring that you're covering that energy cost ensures that you're able to get back to training faster, like your recovery is going to be better. There's a recovery nutrition aspect to this. You've just been through one of the biggest races biggest events of your life and there's so much healing to be done and so that recovery around protein and fluid alongside you know nourishing with all the colors and things is really really important so it's not the time to um you have that messaging or that stress around weight it's really the time to focus on okay what do i need to do here to recover from this injury this event this um, moment that i've had but also to be really forgiving of the other challenges I've got here where my identity is completely smashed. <laughs> I don't know who I am anymore, what I am. I see, you know, my partner going off and still doing their same things, but I'm just here. Um, I don't have my training or I don't have my um, identity as a sports person. I'm now all of a sudden a parent. But you also have challenges around sleep deprivation, which change your hunger, your fullness cues. It changes your perceptions, your mood, your ability to make decision. Um, it, it, it's really, really tough. Um, but you also don't have the time you had to um, previously where you might have prepared food or shopped for food differently and you're finding a new rhythm and a new routine. And you might go for foods that are more comforting, that are more safe, that are easier, more convenient and that's okay. Mm. <laughs> you will find your way, but it's a really messy, crazy time. But also you'll be given, you know, different foods and stuff as well. So you'll be delivered meals and snacks, hopefully. Um, so your food will look different, but hopefully, um, you know, you will be able to embrace that and find your way, um, but it will take some time. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. So, I mean, obviously there's all that, the practical stuff, which mm -hmm. I think you summarized really well there. And obviously there's the, the extra calorie side of things. Mm -hmm. Any other nutrients that people need to particularly focus on during this time? 
Yeah, very similar to um, the pregnancy where you are still looking at iron and calcium, but also protein. Um, the protein side is easier now that you can fit food in. Um, there's less reflux. Um, you've also got rid of that nausea, which is nice. So you've probably got a really solid appetite. Um, and the protein ideally is very similar to your performance nutrition, reco recovery nutrition, really, where protein amounts total is still really important and we're trying to get enough protein in per day um, the protein needs of breastfeeding are higher than the average population but very similar to an athlete so if you are getting back into training plus still breastfeeding your protein needs are quite high but not in an excessive way that's really tough to get through food um, but still around that 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo if you're a maths kind of person. Um, so you do want to make sure that you're not just getting a total amount, but spreading it out per day will make that a whole lot easier. Yep. Yep. Okay. And I guess when, as you said, you know, when you start to, to layer nutrition on top of that, and so you're trying to add those sports nutrition elements mm. back into that, I guess it doesn't sound like there's any sort of ideological clashes so to speak in terms of what's good for breastfeeding versus mm -hmm. what's good for training they're probably going to be complementary it's just a matter of making the two work in terms of the total amount which obviously training increases the needs breastfeeding increases the needs mm -hmm. so you've got two things now increasing your needs yeah the um, energy availability piece is really important here so um if you're looking at it, like if you want to be, um, you know, thinking about it in a maths way, um, if you know roughly how much energy you're using in your training sessions, you can then go, okay, well, I need to definitely eat that much. But then additional to that, times your, um, like your fat-free mass, if you know it, by 45, and that's how many calories you need to be having at least additional to how much you're using in your training so roughly you're looking at at least if you're uh, like for most it's going to be above 2500 at least that's like the minimum i'd ever get to um and for some we're looking at four plus four thousand plus calories um over the day just to make sure that we're covering that 500 calories for your breastfeeding alongside the energy you're using in training and then also all the energy you're going to need for that recovery and the normal body processes that your body needs so it's it's a lot of food um and it can take a lot to kind of switch that over but um yeah it's um a job in itself is to feed um while feeding another um but yeah embrace the snacks <laughs> i yep. think is the key thing yeah and obviously there's the hydration side of things as well yeah, so hydration, again, tricky because you are parked on a couch. So this is where environment is a key. So if you can make these options easy to access, so setting yourself up with a little feed station where you've got a feed station for you where you're feeding baby is one really easy thing. So you've got next to you any snacks or your hydration needs. Also ensuring this sounds really simple, but honestly, you won't know until you're one-handed. Making sure your drink bottle is able to be opened either by your mouth or already open is really essential. You don't want two hands trying to open your drink bottle, impossible. Um, but also finding ways for you to look forward to fluid more. So that might be icing your water. It might be using flavoured tea bags. It might be um, just, it might be adding bubbles, you know, all these things just to entice you to drink enough is really, really important, especially 
once you're also training again. So your hydration needs, if you think about, okay, well, I'm making 800 mils of breast milk. Okay, that's 800 mils of fluid additional at least mm. um, alongside all those different things um, that I'm needing day-to-day anyway, plus my training hydration. So sipping frequently um, is a really good idea. Also making sure that well, when I'm stopped in terms of breastfeeding, I can focus on rehydrating then um, because otherwise you're kind of moving around you're doing all different jobs you're living by the washing line (laughs) so if you can find little ways to make hydration easy but also fueling easy um that's really the key so don't overcomplicate it keep it really simple and find things that you enjoy rather than finding you know ways to make it way too hard for yourself when you've already got so much going on do you think that most women need to sort of make that conscious effort to drink more or do you think kind of thirst takes care of it to a large extent Mm. uh like I've had both. I know I've said, I feel like I've said this around the podcast. It's like, oh, I've had both. Um, So I've had um, some athletes where I've had to be really conscious of creating opportunity for fluid. And then I've had others that have literally said, I am that thirsty that I couldn't actually forget to drink. Um, So there's a thirst element, but there's also an environment element, I feel as well, where if it's too hard to drink or you're distracted um, or you're busy um, or it's just not accessible, it does, it is very easy. Like, I don't think I was ever one to forget to drink or eat before I had kids. And then I was like, oh, now I'm one of those people who has forgotten to eat or forgotten to drink. So there's definitely an environment piece to it where it does get trickier. It does get harder to put yourself first. Um, so that's where making that environment as conducive to, you know, best performance as possible can just make that a little bit easier. And I guess even if thirst is sort of acting appropriately, if you physically can't get to the drink, well, it's <laughs> not much you can do about it. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. And, um, I think even talking around that breastfeeding piece, it would be really remiss of me not to mention um, something that I work a lot with athletes on is not actually nutrition. It's being um, aware of ensuring that you've got that support team around you in terms of that return to sport. So um, any symptoms that you're concerned around in terms of pelvic floor or urinary incontinence or fecal incontinence are common but they shouldn't be your normal uh and having a a female specific physio um is an incredible asset to your team to ensure that you're having those conversations um and for anyone listening where they may not be listening if they're um, about to go through menopause but it is also a time where those symptoms can return or become um, worse as well even if you didn't have those issues around um, childbirth so if you're having urgency um in terms of fecal urgency or you know needing to poo or plan your toiling it's toilet stops it can absolutely be a nutrition thing but it can also be a um a pelvic floor thing that needs investigating through female physio so just wanted to add that in there randomly but ensure that yes there's a um, nutrition aspect but it can also be a physical one as well yeah and i know a a lot of women you know one of their concerns is being able to produce enough breast milk Mm. um does exercise in particular impact on the volume of breast milk produced or only if you're kind of lacking in fluid and protein and things like that. Like if you meet the needs for that, does exercise have any sort of additional impact on that that we know of? No. So for most, they will be able to breastfeed alongside training. And and really those two are three real things of protein, hydration and energy overall are the key things to ensuring that can continue. Um, I, I have athletes at the moment who their bub is eight months and they're now competing in professional sport traveling the world and still breastfeeding and it's just so 
awesome because it's normalized and now uh, you know environments have to think about okay well where are they going to sit to pump where where's the um, powerpoint where are they going to store the milk where's barb black i'm like yes this is what i miss because when i traveled with baby or without baby in professional sport previously I didn't have any of that um, thought of for me. I was mm. obviously not an athlete, but I have vision, like I have a photo of me doing a selfie in a, a public toilet because that was the only place I could find that was private with a PowerPoint to pump. And it's like, yeah, now, now we're starting to think, okay, how do we bring females back into that workforce? And that might be a workforce in terms of an office space, but also it could be a workforce in terms of that athlete space as well. And um, yeah, there's a lot of logistics and stuff to think about. Um, also, you know, it can be really hard to find the time to um, exercise where you don't have um, breast tenderness and soreness. So a really interesting piece that I didn't even think of is how sore you are first thing of a morning if bub has slept a little bit longer and you finally get half hour to yourself, but you can't run and you can't do exercise because your boobs are too full and sore. So it's like there's so many different logistical pieces to this that um, are tough, but stick with it. Like if you can breastfeed, then that's an incredible gift, like to give yourself, but also to show others how it is possible. And um, it's definitely possible. Just ensure that you're feeling yourself, you're hydrating, uh, and you're trying to spread those foods and fluids out evenly over the day to help you do that. Because otherwise it can get a bit tricky. Yep. Yep, cool. So obviously, you know, some women are, are directly breastfeeding, some are expressing, some are doing mm. a combination of the two. Um, and obviously the the frequency of that, how far apart they are, is going to change from, from person to person. Mm. But any sort of tips and advice around how people sort of plan their training around the breastfeeding, whether that's expressing or, or direct breastfeeding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not probably my specialty area. I generally work in combination with the team doctor around that, like if it's possible, um, for the main reason that we want to ensure that um, ideally the um, breast is fed recently before um, exercise for the reasons I said in terms of tenderness, but also um, to try and avoid mastitis as well. So if they're, if you're going long periods of time where you're shuffling between um, feeds, but also that's extending or being different all the time, there is an increased risk of mastitis. So mm. um, that's where we're wanting to ensure that we've got that regularity as possible, but also um, the ability to feed or pump Um, as needed, especially if you're getting back into those really longer sessions or don't have access to your bub when you're competing, um, those different options can be really important. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've also worked with um, some breastfeeding athletes in the past who were Mm. particularly concerned, I guess, about the safety of some of the sort of supplements that they might have regularly Mm. used as an athlete or things like Mm. protein powders and and that kind of thing, not necessarily from an anti-doping perspective because obviously Mm. that risk is there, you know, regardless, but Mm. more so if there was anything in those products that might be of concern for the child who's breastfeeding. Any thoughts or advice around this? Is this an experience that you've come across? Yeah, the concern is a frequent one um, and the question is really common uh, and it makes sense. I think we think a lot more about what goes into our body once someone else is involved Mm. Um, and the evidence is minimal, to be honest. Um, You can imagine there's not a lot of research being done in terms of using supplements and breastfeeding, Um, but they have looked into levels of concern and all those types of things. I think the biggest thing is making sure you're still minimizing supplement use, going food first, but that doesn't need to mean food only uh, in the sense that there is a safe way to do it, but also ensuring that you're only going with those 
level A supplements with high evidence as needed. So um, whey protein and things, there hasn't been any evidence to say that it's dangerous. Um, it can be utilized. You don't want to have um, you know, high servings or rely on it heavily, but it can be integrated into your daily intake if it is needed as a supplement. So ensuring that you're going with those foods first and then using it as a supplement as needed. Um, I've also had questions around sports drink or electrolyte and those types of things. They are found to be quite safe um, and, and no real concerns, particularly because it can then help with hydration as well. Um, and I would probably still go with the um, third batch, third party batch tested supplements to ensure that there isn't um, that, you know, that risk around the um, inadvertent doping as well, or having, you know, things in your supplement, even if you're not someone tested that you weren't aware of when breastfeeding. So keep it really simple with supplements if needed um, and weigh up the pros and cons and the risk for you yourself and absolutely consult your um, own sports dietitian or doctor if possible um, around that before taking anything. Um, there is some really cool research coming out around the creatine and sleep deprivation piece. So um, that's also something that can be utilised as needed, usually as bub gets older, um, because even though there hasn't been any adverse impacts from creatine based around breastfeeding, it can increase creatinine um, levels in bubs. So it's just about managing that of how often are you breastfeeding? Is it worth the risk? Where are we up to with um, the evidence of that? And is there um, the risk to bubs? So um, worth considering if you're in the depths of sleep deprivation and your bubs a bit older, <laughs> mm. because there's also the performance side of that, um, but probably something to limit while you're um, in the early phases of pregnancy. Yep. Is that research specific to postpartum women? No, just sleep no. deprivation. Okay, yeah, I was going to say because <laughs> yeah. there, there has been some stuff done in the past with the military, for example, yes. on sleep deprivation. It's really cool. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I wish I knew sooner, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah. It was only by third bub that it came I came across it. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> my second child, that's when I really needed it, but I yeah. didn't know what then. Oh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's bring all of this together now. Are there any sort of common or crucial mistakes that you see female athletes make when it comes to managing their nutrition uh, around training, either during pregnancy mm -hmm. or breastfeeding? Yeah, the main ones are definitely usually related to um, relationships with food and body. Um, it, it come it can stem from disordered eating behaviors that were there before pregnancy or it can come about as a result of the changes to body that they then feel really uncomfortable by so um, if you find yourself having any of these symptoms where you might notice yourself restricting um, or cutting out food groups or finding yourself missing meals, feeling guilt or shame around your food, um, feeling unsure or confused around your food decisions or eating how you wouldn't recommend a loved one eat if they're in your same position are really key things just to notice in yourself um, and gain some support with in moving through. So uh, if it leads to you being in a place where you do place yourself even accidentally in that low energy availability state um, as a result of disordered eating or as a result of just accidentally underfueling. Um, you want to get on top of that soon if possible. Um, the other piece, which um, I've definitely noticed and that can be really hard, is postpartum with that um, pressure to get back to a certain weight. Now, obviously, there's some sports that are really higher risk 
than others when it comes to this and also depending on your level of um, competing or if you want to return to the sport in the level that you were at pre-baby um, but there can be a lot of pressure and there can also often be a date of return or um, so if you're talking making weight sports or sports where weight is sensitive in terms of um, speed or power to weight um, you can get to a point where you're over restricting or um, not trusting your appetite or under fueling for your needs both on your body your breastfeeding and your training so um, that again if you can work with a sports dietitian I sound so biased but we are we are awesome um, <laughs> that's when you can really make sure that you can um, fuel your body but also not just the science and prescription but actually get to a point where you're getting a really solid relationship with your food and your body to then be able to get to that performance piece as well. Yep. All right. Sounds great. All right. Well, I might hand over to Steph now because you've been pretty quiet there for a while now, Steph. And I think I might leave you to finish off with the bonus round. <laughs> I've been nodding. <laughs> All right. Bonus round. Fun. The fun bit. Um, so this is where our listeners get to learn a little bit more about you, Alicia. Um, so if you weren't working as a sports dietitian um, and you went down a completely different mm. career path, what mm. do you think you would choose? All right. So first of all, it's not a completely different career path. So this may mean that my answer is not valid. But my <laughs> other passion is introducing solids to babies so it's still dietitian but that would be if I wasn't a sports dietitian I would be doing that I adore seeing um mums and bubs just gain so much confidence with food but also setting themselves up with a really solid foundation for you know losing that guilt or anxiety around food as well um that would be my current one if I was to exit sport I'd do something in that um and if I wasn't doing anything nutrition related I find that so hard. I have been so lucky. I don't even know how I've done it. I accidentally entered nutrition and dietetics because my dad picked up a brochure and was like, you like food. You should totally you know, do that. And I missed my first two choices. And so I ended up in nutrition. I was um, the same. Yeah. And now I would not do anything else, which is bizarre to me. But anyway. So you wouldn't go, you wouldn't, you wouldn't choose your, your top two that you initially had? Nope. No, I am so grateful, honestly. Uh, yeah, it, it was very lucky. So thanks, Dad, for seeing that. You know, it was a really cliche photo of like a, a dietitian sitting in an office chair with an apple and banana in either hand. It's funny you say that about, you know, still being in, in food. Like whenever we ask athletes this, they just choose a different sport. Yeah. <laughs> Usually one that pays more money. Yes. Oh my God, that's Dan's problem. He chose like hockey, triathlon, oh something else. I was like, mate, you know, golf, and tennis. Yeah, like there's so yeah. many other options. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. At least we found um, what we like. <laughs> one of the things on your bucket list you haven't yet done. Oh, I think one that still feels really tangible and able to be done is swimming with turtles. It sounds so cute and small but yeah I've never done it and I'd love to um just yeah. go up north and do that at some point but yeah I don't know the That's last cool. two years have kind of totally nailed me in terms of not being able to travel but now that feels like a really accessible family holiday that I can do so I'll do something really easy but there's plenty of other things on my bucket list but that's probably the easy one I hope to cross off soon yeah yeah mm. awesome um and a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the um opportunity 
opportunity or skill. Um, I would have to say surfing. I love um, the idea of surfing. I love the lifestyle of surfing. It just seems like a really cool space. And I've been really fortunate to now work with some professional surfers and they're just really lovely people down to earth, super friendly. Their sportsmanship is so high. And, yeah, I think that's probably the spot that I would have loved to have an opportunity to have a go at as a child. But I lived so far away from the beach that was never going to happen. But now um, that I do live close to the beach, I still feel like maybe it's not too late just to have a go, but I would make a fool of myself. There is no doubt. (laughs) Um, And um, a favourite moment from the Tokyo Olympics or the Paralympics? How good. Can I do fun for me? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you can. Oh, I think, like, I'm going to be totally biased. So we had um, the Matildas in Tokyo and... I think the biggest thing for me that I loved is everyone else just realizing how awesome they are. So I was having messages from everyone going, oh my God, your girls are epic. I was like, I know, they're amazing. Um, but winning um, the quarterfinal match against GB to um, get us into the semis was definitely just incredible. Like it was, I think it was a scoreline of like 4-3. So it was a really cool match mm. to watch. And I was definitely literally on the side, edge of my seat, just in awe of these girls. Um so that was my most memorable moment um, from Tokyo. And then the para, it's actually not of our athlete winning, but um, we've worked with Lauren Parker for a really long time. She's a para triathlete. Um, I actually trained with her when I was doing Ironman. So we spent a lot of time together on the bike. You know what? She was so much faster than me in the pool. I never spent any time with her in the pool. But um, <laughs> we, we just knew each other really well. So when she had her accident, I think it was five years ago now um where she became a paraplegic she then um just absolutely got swept up into paratriathlon and to be honest she's so brave and resilient and she goes through so much every day with her chronic pain um in silence most of the time but also paratriathlon is what saved her quite literally Mm -hmm. in terms of um where she is now so she, if you remember Paratriathlon in that race, she actually got um, pipped at the post and she got a silver medal. And, um, yeah, it's my favourite moment. I don't think I've ever felt so passionate um, on that uh, for an athlete going down that blue line, just egging them on. And I just felt all of her disappointment, um, but also just so proud of, you know, how far she had come in that really short time point since, you know, such a big life event um, where she could have totally been forgiven for not doing anything um but she's mm. just absolutely thrown herself into sport um and inspiring others so yeah that was my moment from paratri and mm. paralympics yep yep mm. and do you live by any piece of advice or um or motto hmm. i think um more recently it's been just ensuring that i'm always embracing the uncomfortable um because I've worked out that that's actually where I become such a better person but I also progress so much faster and at times I do catch myself being safe um being comfortable particularly um when we're working from home like I didn't have my team around me in the office and you know it was easy just to do what I do best in terms of servicing um but the more that I now you know I don't spend much time in professional development for sports nutrition because I realize that's where I'm safe that's actually where I love and I already know enough to get me most of the time to work with my athletes in my best space so 
I lean towards what makes me really uncomfortable and that's learning about behavior, leadership, people, business, um, entrepreneurship. Like it's just so uncomfortable to me. Um, but I also love pushing boundaries now because, um, yeah, every time I learn something different. So for me, the motto and what I repeat internally when I'm hesitant is like, Mm -hmm. do what scares you. And it's really hard and there's a privilege to it. I don't always follow it because sometimes I just literally don't have the capacity to, I'm already Mm -hmm. broken or I'm already too tired or I'm already too stressed. Um, But when I can, I'll um, lean into that. Yeah. Good one. Very good one. Um, Thank you so much um, for for your time. And um, yeah, and it's been really great advice, really practical and um, I think really useful having that personal experience there yourself um, going through three. Um, And, yeah, I know our listeners will find it really, really useful. So thanks thanks heaps for for coming on and joining us. Thank you, Steph, and thank you, Alan, for having me and inviting me on. It's been a pleasure to talk about it. It's something that, um, you know, often doesn't get much airtime and Mm. um, it's really great to hear stories and I have so many reflections now and I'm really grateful for, um, you know, social media for bringing more stories like this or, um, you know, in terms of birth stories um, to the open because I was in a space in 2015, Instagram was only just coming out and I didn't know any of this birth trauma stuff. I didn't know about the return to play kind of side of things about getting checked and getting returned to play in terms of physio. Um, So I think the more we talk about it, the more we talk about all the different diversity in what pregnancy can look like, feel like for others, and then also diversity in terms of what postpartum can look like, um, the more empathy we'll be able to hold for ourselves, but also for each other um, as we enter in this space, because there is no normal (laughs) and there's no glamorous. It's um, a really rocky ride for many and um, yeah, but also an amazing one. So yeah awesome awesome thanks thank you thank you all right thank you very much alicia some great uh practical advice there um some of it from working with other women and some of it from her own experience steph do you want to give us a summary here i've done a lot of summaries lately so i thought i'd handball this one to you for a change you handball it to me, but I'm using your information. <laughs> but I'll take I'll take the credit, um, and I'll add in my little bits. Um, <laughs> so nutrition during pregnancy. Um, so as we spoke to Alicia, we wanted to get to know a bit more about what the increased energy needs are, and so it does increase, but not by all that much, so about 150 kilocalories a day in the first trimester. However, that does increase up to 500 kilocalories um, per day in the third trimester. So a reasonable um, amount in that period and particularly considering we've got, you know, it's a bit more uncomfortable to consume that extra energy. Uh, Training, obviously, we need to add extra energy on top of that, Um, although the amount of of training may not be as much as what we used to do during um, pregnancy, depending on how we're feeling um, and, you know, what what medical advice we have been given, because as we know, every birth is, is different. Morning sickness, nausea and reflux reflux can make things really tricky for for some women. Um, And, um, again, 
every birth can be different. Alicia had a, a beautiful birth in the first period in terms of not much um, trouble with that, but the second and third really um, did challenge her. So she mentioned about changing the time of day you train may help with that, but it's obviously not always possible um, with, you know, work and other commitments that you may have. It can also cause problems as well um, in terms of energy availability. It can be a struggle to get in enough energy for our exercise and because again, that possible discomfort um, with having something big in our tummy. So trying to get in smaller, more frequent meals or more energy-dense, lower-fibre foods um, may help with getting in that extra energy. Also, some women find the change in their bodies um, helps them let go of previous body image concerns, but then there's going to be others that may actually find that quite distressing. So just, um, I guess, a note there that if you are finding it quite challenging, um, please go and and seek help in that area. And then there's the sort of, yeah, the standard vitamin and mineral supplements that are recommended pre-conception if you know um, that you're, you know, planning to have a baby. Um, And then obviously the ones during pregnancy. Yeah, so um, for first trimester, folate and iodine, um, and we need to take that whether we're training or not training. Um, so the typical supplements we, we need to take in, in those uh, periods of time. Female runners, cyclists and triathletes are already a high-risk group for iron deficiency and, and iron requirements go up during this time. Um, so it might be a good idea to check um, what your iron status and levels are in, in preconception um, if you're able to and um, then, you know, look into that if you do need to increase those levels and then obviously just monitoring that during pregnancy as well. Uh, and then for when we get into breastfeeding, again, in terms of the extra energy needs, it's very similar to to pregnancy, particularly in that third trimester where it's about 500 kill cows um, a day. Um, there's an increased requirement for iron and calcium and, and protein. Um, in this period of time, many women's um, appetite is um, matched to the need. Um, they don't have that issue with um, trying to fit stuff in with minimal room in the stomach, um, so it's much easier to get in the nutrition. Um, and then fluid needs are obviously also increased because um, the breast milk production can vary between about 800 mils to maybe a litre or so a day. Um, so making sure we're aware of the hydration um, needs um, and whether they're getting in enough. And we spoke about the difficulty sometimes in um, being able to access that hydration if we're not planned ahead um, of time. And then recovery from pregnancy and birth, um, yeah, should be seen as exactly that. So um, it's we should consider it like we're recovering in a way from a major injury. Um, so um, we don't want to be, you know, like some people try and then get back to their race weight too quickly and then they're trying to cut out calories and things like that. So um Try not to get caught up with that. Um, and um, if you listen to your needs and your appetite, Alicia said, you know, even though you're consuming extra energy, um, the body composition can often take care of itself um, and does go the direction that we usually want it to, to be going in. 
Um, and then um, exercise itself doesn't seem to impact on, on milk production um, and that is something that a lot of us do here. So um, that was good to, to find out. Um, exercising first thing in the morning may actually be unlikely to work to work um, because of um, your, your breast feeling quite um, painful depending on the feeding um, timing. Uh, so um, you may want to feed and express first before you actually go off to training or you might learn that the hard way. Um, and you'll be spending a lot of time, as we mentioned, one-handed on the couch, so just making sure you're good with planning ahead, um, which can be tricky when you've got so many things going on. Um, and then as you do return to training, uh, initially it's likely to be a graded return, so additional nutrition needs won't um be that significant um but just make sure you're getting in enough for the um, postpartum recommendations and then as training volume increases you may need to start reintroducing uh the periodized nutrition principle of increasing carbs leading into training sessions having more carbs during training etc so back to what you hopefully were practicing prior to um, becoming pregnant in terms of periodizing your nutrition for your training um, needs and then in terms of supplements and sports foods because um, that can be a common question um, uh, there's um, there's I guess no guarantee that sports supplement foods and, and supplements won't be contaminated um, but that's where then if you can go for the batch tested products um, that at least don't contain any known banned stimulants or other WADA banned substances. But then also just think about do you actually need that supplement and when is it needed? Um, so I guess just thinking, I mean, we should always think pretty good in terms of what supplements we're using anyway and how they should be used and needed. But people might look into that a bit more when they've got, you know, someone else that they're um, looking after. All right. Good summary, Steph. Thanks, Al. I added in little bits. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so thinking ahead to our next episode now, what have we got coming up next week? Yeah, so same question. How do my training nutrition needs change when I'm pregnant or breastfeeding? Um, but we're lucky enough now to be joined by um, an athlete and mum of two, uh, ultra runner Kelly Emerson, who we have had um, right near the start of our um, podcast hour when we were talking about how to tackle um, your first ultra um, in terms of training for that. Um, so, yeah, we're lucky enough to have Kelly and uh, she's got, um, she's about, I think, 28 weeks or so pregnant right now and then she's got um, a little um, kid already. So, uh, yeah, it, it'd be great. She's been continuing to to train and compete at a really high level um, during this period of time. So we thought there's no one better to chat to than Kel. Mm, absolutely. And, I mean, her background in occupational therapy, she's been mm. quite um, quite thoughtful, I guess, in the return to training postpartum as well. So we'll talk yeah. a little bit about that. Um, yeah, really good And how she's there. managed that. Yeah, cool. All right, so just a final reminder, if you've got a particular question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, 
Of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on the various podcasting platforms where you're listening to this right now. Uh, and obviously, if you've got people out there that are asking you on your long ride or run, oh, I don't know about this, or they've got a particular question, and we've already answered it before, you can say, look, there's this podcast called The Long Munch, and you can go back and listen to it. Uh, and just a reminder, if you are fairly new to the podcast, that there is, uh, obviously, this is the 36th different question that we've looked at in the podcast. So there's a quite a back catalogue there now, going back about 18 months. So uh, if if you do have a particular question, you might want to go back and have a look. Sometimes you don't see all of them on the first page on your podcast app. Um, so scroll down through that and you may actually find that that question's already been answered before. Yeah. All right. So that's it from us today. Hopefully you've enjoyed this session and looking forward to our podcast next week with Kelly Emerson. Awesome. We'll see you then. See ya.